in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Hey everybody, welcome back to It's Not Just Your Head. This is Max Golding, LMFT, out in California in the United States on planet Earth. And <laughs> and we have uh, Harriet Fraud, of course. Um, Harriet, you want to say hi before we, we get into hi, it? Hi, I'm Harriet Fraud, or if you want to get formal, Dr. Harriet Fraud from the East Coast, mm-hmm. welcoming um, you. And... Uh, yeah, so actually first before we, we jump in, because we forget to do this sometimes, a huge thank you to uh, some particular patrons. They're called the Sustainer Patrons who are sustaining the podcast. We have First Winter, Sarah Turner, Rebecca Johns, and now Justin Harper. Uh, and of course, thank you, Liam, for helping with the editing and social media. Um, yes. You are super, super helpful to us. And so with that out of the way, um, today we're going to, um, well, maybe just as a zoom out, we've had almost exclusively the two of us and a guest for a couple months. We've been going pretty hard on the guests and it's been great and it's fun. And we already have people lined up for like the next month, but today it's just going to be myself and Harriet. And um, today we're going to be talking about kind of a zoom out view of what's going on in America on a political level and how it's affecting Americans on an emotional level. And uh, does that sound accurate, Harriet? That sounds just it? right, period. Wonderful. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, you want to take it away? Yes, I do. Okay. okay. Today, what I want to talk about is what's happening in the United States on a macro, a large level, and how then, after we discuss that, how it's translating into people's daily emotional lives. Because America is in a place we've never been in, and people are reacting. And so I would begin by saying that where America is is really captured by the poet Yeats in his poem, The Second Coming. And lines in that are, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. And what was the center in the United States? was a large middle class. It's something that we bragged about and that we expanded with our world dominance after World War II, where there were enough people making family wages, which happened until the late 70s, able to support dependent enough white men, because it was only for whites in our white majority country at that time, where men were making family wages that supported dependent wives and children. That stopped when their jobs were exported by capitalists to countries where people work for less and there are few ecological conditions for employment for a factory coming in. So merchandising was kept here often, but manufacture was exported and people's well-paying, often junior union jobs were exported with them. And at that same time, women, that be, the women's movement began in 1965 to 68, and African Americans, whose civil rights movement began in the 60s and went on into the 70s, began to want some kind of equality in the economy and in society. Well, 
That's over. The American middle class is over. Factories have exported our jobs. We didn't have the kinds of socialists or communists or anarchists in power that made it forbidden to export people's jobs in a country like Sweden with a huge socialist presence and a country like Denmark, Finland, Iceland, etc., the more prosperous and the more happy, according to the UN, the more happy countries of the world. You cannot export any factory job overseas unless you get everyone working there a a job at equivalent pay. So if you stop making a product, you better start making another one because you have to make sure everyone has equal employment. Germany has the same constraints. Of course, we don't because we are, we don't have powerful communist, socialist, anarchist parties as counterweights to capitalism. And so our jobs were exported in order to make more money for the people who already have a lot of money. And people, the middle class is over. People try to sustain it by going on credit and getting more credit card debt than was ever, ever accumulated before, because instead of paying people good salaries, they gave them credit so that they could people could pay them back with interest. Good trick. And so that people then tried, okay, send women back to work as well, because although African Americans, excuse me, <coughs> have allergies, African Americans <coughs> never made equivalent wages, but the majority were white and had white male wages until the export of their jobs in the 70s. Therefore, the middle class disappeared because a man and a woman both working can't make what the equivalent buying power is of what the white male wage was in the 1970s. In addition, we had a pandemic which is out of which was out of control because Trump had sold our pandemic supplies and we were totally unprepared for a national united effort, which is what every country that did that has gone through. The Americans, unfortunately, have the distinction we are the worst at handling the pandemic. We have the most cases per population of any other nation on earth. We didn't have a centralized national response that tested people, tracked people, treated people, and protected people. And so we have that, and we have also a national recession as severe as anything except the Great Depression of the 30s, and we're getting there. Fully 60% of Americans were unemployed at some point during the pandemic. What does that mean? What does it mean in your life? It means that they couldn't pay their bills and Americans are documented as living paycheck to paycheck. That's the at least 80%, not the top 20. 
but you get most of the money, but the bottom 80. Therefore, they accumulated more debt. They had to borrow, which they can't pay back. When there was a hold on rents, they didn't pay rent, but they're going to have to pay it when the pandemic is finished. And there's too much back rent to be paid by a $1,400 stimulus. That hardly covers one month's rent. And looking at it, we have to understand what this means. Two people working full time, a couple pooling their income and working full time and working at minimum wage in America cannot afford a two-bedroom apartment in any state or any county in the United States. And so what is $1,400 and a child allowance going to do? People have all of this backed up debt and there hasn't been granted a debt jubilee that forgives all debts accrued during this pandemic for the 80% of the population. So people are quite desperate. And what's being, the two parties are also losing their center. The Republicans are becoming a fascistic party way to the right. What Biden is trying to do is hold together a coalition which is basically untenable of his progressives who want a Green New Deal and racial justice and gender justice and most important, economic justice and a corporate group of donors that don't want any of those things because they'll have to be taxed like they were like they were for the New Deal. So on the one hand, Biden is catering to what he hopes will pass as the left. And that's greater gender justice and racial justice, but not touching class because the class structure is not addressed. The wealthy are not taxed. And on the other hand, he's trying to placate the progressives with gender and race reforms without the class reforms that really are needed for the mass of America's working people. So that we have a polarized situation that the Democrats are trying to hold together, that the Republicans have given in to their right wing. And things are falling apart. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Well, it means that Biden has to distract people in a hurry. And part of the distraction is to employ what Americans have always done, use foreign policy, to direct people's anger and hatred at other nations. The Republicans are trying to get people's anger going at black people, uppity women, 
and refugees and immigrants. The Democrats are starting to saber wave by calling Russia's leader Putin a criminal and a killer and accusing China of oppressing its Muslim population, the Uyghurs, who are no doubt oppressed. But if you do research on the Uyghurs, they have done quite a few terrorists. They're Islamicists, and they've done a lot of terrorist acts in China, A. And B, the United States has hardly a pedestal to stand on since over 6 million Muslims have been killed in our bombings in Iraq and Afghanistan, and more are being killed in the United States' recent bombing of Syria, which was Biden's little gift to the military, which is the one area that the United States' production is the top in the world, the most in the world, and that's weapons production. So giving $100 billion to develop new missile systems in outer space is Biden's gift to them. Not having a wealth tax is his gift to the top, who have made over $100 billion in this pandemic. And he's throwing gender and race bones at people to show that he has a left, which he doesn't have. Plus, he has encouraged unions, which is his other little gift to that 80% who are suffering terribly. These are, that's the big picture. On the everyday picture, people are doubling up into many people in one apartment because they know that when that temporary rent pardon is over, they're going to owe many months' rent, and that $1,200 is not going to cut it. And if they can ever go back to work, they need childcare, which costs as much as a community college tuition every semester, and they don't see any possibility for themselves. And so they're casting about going either with the Republicans and a fascistic agenda or with progressives, with a social and more socialistic, a social democratic agenda like they have in what is very interestingly the top 10 happiest countries in the world according to the 2021 U.S., not U.S., U.N., <laughs> happiness index. The top is Finland, and there's Denmark, Iceland, the Netherlands, Norway, New Zealand with its social um, labor socialist, and um, Switzerland and Austria, both of which have powerful socialist components. And so that they're feeling good. Americans, which used to be 13th in the world, not in the top 10, but 13th on the happiness index, have now gone down to 19th. And we have to bear in mind that American people are always supposed to say they're happy. And these are based on surveys. In any case, 
on an individual level, suicide has spiked. Domestic violence has spiked. And it's interesting that with every spike in unemployment, there's a concomitant, you know, accompanying spike in shaken baby syndrome, which happens when a baby who's crying, usually in an annoying way, is shaken so hard that its brain turns to jelly or is damaged and causes blindness and other horrible things. And crime is way up. In New York City, subway crime is up 150% since the pandemic. People are angry and they don't know where to direct their anger because they're too apolitical. So they're shoving people off of subway platforms and slashing people and raping people and hurting Chinese people. Things are out of control. Also, what's out of control is that people used to be motivated from a mythology that if you work really hard, and that really was true until the 70s, you can get ahead. And every generation, as long as they're white and have a male wage earner, can do better than the one before. Well, that's over. As they watched who's prospered in the pandemic, the richest people in the United States, those 661 billionaires and multi-billionaires, and who has suffered from the 60% unemployment and the lower wages if they ever get a job, that's the mass of the American people, who worked hard. Some of the hardest workers right now are people they call essential, although they don't pay them very well, people who work in stores, people who work supplying food, people who work serving food, people who work as bus drivers and other transit workers, 143 transit workers have died of COVID in New York. These are these essential workers who do not get magnificent salaries. Firefighters, police who do get higher salaries, but not at the top. And people are suffering. And they know in a way that perhaps they could not have to know before this pandemic that if you work hard and are honest, you don't necessarily get anything. You might very well get laid off while other people are making more money and you are miserable. And so they are acting out. People are joining organizations on the positive side. DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, have increased more than 150% of their number. And that is really positive. People are organizing unions who didn't before because they see they have to. Bessemer, Alabama, Amazon warehouse with its 6,000 people is actually having a union election that Amazon could not defeat, even though they spend $10,000 a week keeping unions out of their stores, out of their warehouses, out of their business altogether, out of Whole Foods. People at Whole Foods 
in San Francisco had a union rally last week. This is happening all over the country because that is a positive movement. People are realizing, wait a minute, we are like the Europeans. We can't get ahead by working hard. We need each other and we've got to have solidarity. And so that they're joining unions. They're also joining things like Time's Up and Me Too and the Black Lives Matter movements, which are ways that gender and race are being organized around. And sometimes they come together. In New York City right now, there's everyday news about Mayor Andrew Cuomo, who was a big hero at first for talking people through and having daily talks about COVID and so on. But now eight women have come out against him for sexually inappropriate behavior. Only one claims he actually grabbed her, but the other seven talk about sexual insinuations, inappropriate questions about their sexuality, and generally a creepy, over-sexualized approach. Not calling them by their names, but by honey, baby, demanding that they dress in high heels and in elegant clothing. And what's happening, I think, because look, this is routine behavior, but Cuomo is being singled out because he is the center right. And the Republicans want to get rid of him because they hope for a Republican governor so that they can get Trump pardoned from his 27 sexual assaults and his bank fraud, insurance fraud, and tax fraud cases. And the left is trying to replace Cuomo with someone genuinely progressive who deals with affordable housing, who deals with employment, who deals with free health care. And so he is an agenda, he is an arena really on which the left and right are fighting and both attacking him. Not that he doesn't deserve it for an abusive workplace and corruption and other things. However, that's why he's chosen, I think, because his sexual crimes are nothing compared to the ex-president's rapes. At any rate, what's happening on the macro scale is that the center can't hold and people are lost. And going to the left or the right or just being lost and angry and acting out. And going to the right or going to the left in order to hold it together. And so that people are suffering. Women are suffering perhaps even more than most because it's women who have the double burden of taking care of children when the schools close, as well as working. 42% of children are born outside of any kind of marriage. And so if 40, about 40% of women are working, leaving their kids alone and not being able to afford childcare because they're, quote, essential workers who are underpaid, they're desperate. And over, and women, according to all the studies, 
it will take at least a decade to catch up with the employment gains we used to have. And so people are desperate and sad. They're desperate and sad, and they're organizing, joining the left, joining the right, and joining against oppression through gender and race, but also being utterly upset. Calls to the National Suicide Hotline have gone up over 700%. Because people don't know what to do. The mythology of America, of its hope, and upward mobility is crumbling. They see their chances falling. They do not get the supports that they need. They don't have neighborhood counseling centers and free childcare and free Medicare. And they're desperate. And so what we are trying to do here is say, these problems are not all in your head. If you're thinking, if you're feeling desperate, you need to connect with other people and do something about it. Because this is not a psychological issue that you're going to get through just through therapy. Therapy helps enormously. It helps you deal with the irrational elements of your pain and of the sense that you are somehow wrong, which the society says, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? You know, there's something wrong with you rather than there's something wrong that's going on here. And we can fix it if we join together. And all those things are happening. And I think it helps. It certainly helped me to think through what is going on here that the center cannot hold. The economic conditions of its, of its existence are not there. And the social conditions of its existence are not there. And we need to help each other get it there. So that would be sort of my little diagnosis of what's happening. (laughs) I live in New York, where it's very stark. And what we can do about it, which is a lot of organizing for our rights, and and most of all, it's my hope that we find a political umbrella, a third force that unites us all, whether we're upset about affordable housing, or police brutality, or racism, or sexism, or educational inequality, or everything else that is empowering of the mass of people, that we have an umbrella party that represents us all so we can unite, because we are the majority and would have the power. That is my hope in this. What do you think, Max, having heard me rant on this? Uh, well, you think, there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just thinking, well, we're screwed. No, <laughs> yeah. that I think, that I think uh, man, I got a lot of thoughts on it. I guess um, um, I'm with you on the organizing, because if, if that's the diagnosis, which is probably for the most part accurate, um, I mean, you didn't throw in the ecological stuff, really. I should have, the climate um, destruction. Well, because because that's another that's another piece of it. But I guess, um, yeah. I mean, years ago, I got into I hit a certain point psychologically where I was like, "This is this is all so screwed. 
I want to be involved in solutions. And I got really into the activist stuff. And, you know, I had, I think, the sort of economic and time privilege to actually be able to do so. Not, I feel like not everyone is, although sometimes I think there's a kind of almost insulting uh, when people say that the majority of people are too busy to be involved, like I sometimes think like, no. you know, m- people are more sort of on their screens and scrolling through social media and, and stuff than ever before right. in, in any previous generation. So I'm just like, you know, be on Facebook for one hour a week less and like go yes. to a, whatever it is, DSA meeting. I don't, whatever, I don't care what it is, but just go to a thing, get it connected to something. But I, I, I think that for me, it seems one, one, difficult thing for me sometimes is that I've been so like hyper involved over the last 10 years or so that I have a very, um, how do I put it? I have sometimes it's, it's sometimes a judgmental or a frustration or an impatient orientation toward, I think just the, the general population. I'm like, why aren't people, why isn't like everyone involved? Like it's, everything's obviously so fucked up that we obviously need more than like therapy and to just sort of watch the news and to quote unquote, stay informed. We need to really have like an all hands on deck. You know, we're all kind of trying to solve these problems together. And so I, I end up hitting a wall myself sometimes. Now I'm turning you to my therapist, but, um, but it's something that I've struggled with a lot because when I hear you diagnose the whole situation in the really broad, I mean, the global, geopolitical, political, emotional, sociological <laughs> way that you did, it makes me just go back to like, yeah, we need more organizing, right? And yep. when when you talk about, and there's a lot of different modes of organizing. I mean, there, are, you, you can even be like a passive member, a not hugely active member of, say, Again, DSA is just sort of the most obvious, you know, just because their memberships are through the roof. Not everybody is super excited about DSA, but they're just one example. But you can be like a sort of dues-paying member, or you can be somebody who just reads the newsletters or something like that, and you like stay up to date. But um, what makes me sad sometimes is that I think there, for for a lot of people, there's a sort of nihilism that's set in, an apathy, an indifference, and a sort of... Um, like an enduring sense of hopelessness that I don't think should be diagnosed as depression or anything close to it. I think it's a sort of, it's a miscalculation of the political situation for a lot of people where they, they inaccurately assume that there absolutely is no way out. And the only, the only way forward is to sort of cope by whatever drugs, alcohol, numbing out on TV shows or something like that. Because those things do help to kind of distract from how completely screwed everything is. Um, and and there are, like you said, there are some people, like I can think of clients and ex-clients who are, you know, if especially if you're in the position of, say, like a single mom with a kid or two or more and your economic situation screwed, you don't have, if, let's say you're like a person of color with no like intergenerational, like you don't have a grandparents are going to help you pay off the debts to do X, Y, and Z or something like that. And there's just no safety net. And the, the government, um, the, the bureaucracy is too tangled for you to even get through, you know, the 10 steps to get the help that you need. I mean, some people, I don't think I wouldn't blame a lot of folks for feeling indifferent and hopeless when they really do. They actually have tried and they're like, no, this is hopeless. I'm, I am totally disengaged. But I think for the rest of, of folks like if you even have like an hour of free time a week that you could be like not you know 
not like numbing out on social media or something like that. I really do think it's a very goddamn good time Mm -hmm. for folks to get linked into some sort of uh, organizing project. Um, You know, there's, there's an infinite number of, of ways to get, you know, whether, whether it's an identity thing, if you're just like, Oh, I want to get linked into black lives matter or like a feminist project or um, an immigration rights thing or tenant organizing or labor organizing or um climate extinction as you so very correctly right extinction rebellion i mean there's a lot of really exciting conversations about the green new deal happening that's um a more sort of localized regionalized base building project that they're trying to integrate what i would really love to see is like if the afl cios pro act stuff were to link up with the environmental movement to say let's Let's talk mm. about strengthening labor and integrating into a Green New Deal program. I think we'd be pretty, and if you could somehow, I don't know if it has to be at gunpoint or not, but get the Democratic Party to actually adopt something like that. Well, um, it'd have to be demonstrations in the streets. You'd, you'd, have, to, you'd have to force it. I mean, I had yeah, a friend yesterday who's a um, very kind of like orthodox Marxist, like sociology PhD guy, and he was saying, that the uh, something in the circles he's in are people talking about the surrogate party model, basically trying to build a third party uh, since we saw what happened with Bernie in 2016 and 2020, that just saying, you know, the squad and certain kind of DSA type candidates have made some gains in the democratic mm-hmm. party, but, um, but yeah. trying to actually build a kind of third, like you were saying, a third force that's beyond the yeah. Dems and beyond sort of the NGO nonprofit like direct service world that's funded by billionaires and everything like that there has to be a sort of third you know way around all of that to either overpower the current power structures mm-hmm. or to actually compete with them enough to where they're forced to adopt more radical positions kind of thing yes um i think that's a legitimate approach as well so you know, either which way, I guess what I'm trying to get at here, because if you were diagnosing the problem, I want to say that I don't personally, ha- neither of us have the, the sort of treatment to the diagnosis in an, any exact way. No. But in, in the general sense, I think connecting with others who also understand the gravity of the situation and plugging in, um, it does, this isn't, doesn't have to be some sort of, you're not trying to be Jesus on the cross, like savior, make huge sacrifices in your life necessarily. Um, some people do. In fact, actually, I'll give one example. I know a, a couple who decided to leave academia and do what they, they sort of laughingly say they committed class suicide, that they were in somewhat comfortable positions. And then they decided instead to live in a, um, like a small cottage, sort of in the middle of nowhere, but then to organize um, in like a big box sort of Walmart or Target shop and do tenant organizing for where the workers at the big box shop work. And they just decided, let's just, de- so that's really extreme, but they decided like, let's actually get rid of some of our economic comforts and let's, as a couple, we're going to sort of like love each other and love our values and just live out our values for the rest of our lives by trying to organize the working class. That's not something I think everybody wants to do yeah. or everybody's going to do, but it's an example that I thought, well, holy crap, some people are actually willing to make enormous sacrifices. But again, an hour a week, two hours a week, you know, attending some meeting. If you, even if you don't know what the hell you're doing, you can be like the note taker during some sort of meeting where you just, you know, everyone's 
people are facilitating and they're debating the the thing or where to protest or what the next campaign is. And you're just typing away the notes. It's all you have to do or, um, or whatever. There's all kinds of things people can do. Um, and I I wish, (coughs) sorry, last thing is I, I, I just, I wish for our field that we had more, it's not like, it's not like we can get into every therapy session therapists are having, but I wish there were more therapists also, trying to instead of instead of thinking as referrals like oh i need to refer you to a psychiatrist i need to refer you to that or or refer you to community services or something like that um or to get you linked up to advocacy programs i I wish there was more in the mental health field and understanding that um you can also somehow plug people into these kinds of projects and it's also going to give them a sense of purpose and meaning which is good for depression which might help as a gradual exposure against social anxiety kind of treatment. There, there are a lot of multifaceted ways. I think that the mental health field could start thinking in these ways as well, that we need sort of like politically engaged, um, quote unquote, clients or patients or yes. citizens or whatever. Um, yeah, okay, done with yeah. my rant. <laughs> well, I think what you're saying, which is very important, is what Johan Hari said in his book, Lost mm-hmm. Connections. Mm-hmm. that connecting to people is a mental health cure mm-hmm. that the more you're disconnected the less you're going to be mentally okay because we are social animals there's no question about it americans are are social animals and so is every other people of the world and we need to connect each other and with with each other and within this emergency situation as therapists, we need to suggest to people that get to get active. One of the reasons that DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, are growing by wild leaps and bounds is it is an umbrella organization. And I really love what you said, Max, because out of the picture that I presented is also this rumbling awareness that we're destroying the planet and soon we won't be able to breathe anymore and we won't be able to have a life anymore. And so in that vast umbrella is also the extinction rebellion, rebellion against corporations making money by destroying the air and the water and facilitating our extinction. You know, they blame a lot of the problems on cutting down the Amazon rainforests, but of course they do because lumber makes money, and it's the lumber interests that have murdered the indigenous people who live there and continue to chop down the forests. And they have a fascist leader in Brazil who doesn't mind at all. So that these things do all tie together. Mm -hmm. And we need an umbrella organization so that we know that we are the majority. And I think it is, and I know from my own practice, but that liberation model that we presented when we had our mm-hmm. liberation therapy guests here mm-hmm. of the personal, of the triangle of the personal, the cultural, and the political economic situations of people are all bombarding people. But I think that part of the personal solution that gives you energy because you know you're not alone, that gives you hope because you sustain the hope together that gives you connection with other people in a time of loneliness is an enormous psychological boon, as well as the only way we're ever going to have a voice 
to stop the destruction of our world and to create an America that's reasonable. You know, one of the reasons that the Chinese are gaining on the United States, the United States is still the top economy in the world, but it's only growing by about 1%, and the Chinese are growing by 4 to 6% a year and are getting much more wealthy because they have a combination of an authoritarian state, a united state that coordinates everything, which is why they got rid of the coronavirus. But they have a powerful state, but they also have private capitalists who are monitored. Now, I'm not saying China is ideal. They came from feudalism in the 1950s, so they've come a long way. Mm. But the way they're growing contests American power, and no saber-rattling of calling other people names changes that. They have 12 high-speed trains across China. We have none across the United States. Europe has several high-speed trains. We don't have any. You know, there's... Mm -hmm. I used to go to France because my husband has French relatives. We used to go there every year. And we used to be so far ahead in the 70s, and now they're ahead. Mm. All these little things, like they have computers, computer codes that get your car started. They have ways of checking, of buying things that nobody's stealing. It's more expensive. What they do is more expensive. But there are a thousand little things in daily life and also they're doing better in part because anyone who was going to be fired because of the pandemic has the government paying between 70 and 90% of their salary on condition that their employers have to re-employ them as soon as this pandemic is through. So, and they've gotten that because of their powerful left parties. And, and I, we don't have those things because we crushed the left with the McCarthy era, and it's just coming back. Yeah, you know, and I, I'm I'm just kind of learning this stuff now, stuff that's probably it was probably relatively obvious to you at some point. But um, I, somebody pointed out to me recently that one of many reasons that Western Europe has such a strong left is in part that um, I mean, as if you think of sort of the development from you know, the mid, mid to late 1800s of like Marx's writings and, and just the general sort of populist understanding that capitalism was kind of a shit show and that we needed yeah. to do something else that, you know, the obvious sort of center of where, <clears throat> you know, the, the center of anti-capitalism being what became the USSR, that a lot of Western Europe um, became really afraid of communism spreading. And so there were a lot of concessions made to where to why this is at least what I've heard is that why social democracy that the more sort of um, that the not not so heavy handed forms of quote unquote socialism throughout Western Europe that work way better than in the U.S. but are not um, that are not like the one party state right uh, heavy handed you know like all of that um, and these like parliamentary systems where you'll have like some you know fa a fascist group with a sort of like corporate whatever group with and then you'll have like communists and social, whatever. And there'll be like two or three different types of either socialist parties or, or contingencies within a party or whatever. 
that that what I what I heard is that part of that is because the left was so militant and strong in saying we actually are shooting for the one party state, the dictatorship, the proletariat, and everything, and that so those concessions were made similar to. And again, I don't know. I'm not a hist, I'm not like a socialism historian or anything, but it kind of made sense. Also thinking about the way that the New Deal emerged here in the U.S., the FDR had to make concessions so that capitalism wouldn't be fully overthrown. That you know that they had to say. The people in power to say, "Fine, we'll give you stuff, but we're not we're not giving up capitalism." That's right. That that in the U.S., I mean, we're at a we're at a point now where, um, like I was thinking recently about even with like Rachel Maddow and like the MSNBC people, they typically seem very liberal. Yeah. And I guess I don't know if the if if listeners, you know, sometimes the word liberal in sort of leftist circles, people will say, "Well, well, I'm a leftist. I'm not a liberal," meaning sort of I'm anti-capitalist. I'm not I'm not into this like fake stuff or whatever but with like rachel maddow and them the way that they've even like right now to my understanding the way they're still talking about like putin russia china there is a sort of like assumption at the root of it that they're that the u.s is still supposed to be number one and that it's supposed to be the global power and it's and imperialism is sort of okay we're going to sort of not we're going to be in denial that it's imperialism or that the u.s has been using imperialist um whether it's like sneaky corporate free trade and economic hitmen kinds of methods or, mm-hmm. or, or something more overt with like bombs and whatever and military force that we're just going to sort of be in denial that that's been a premise of the, our entire country for a long time. But we're going to like, we're going to be real nice about things and we're going to critique people like Trump. And when people say like racist, sexist stuff, but at the end of the day, it's still compared to basic, almost all of Europe, even though there is a sort of fascistic uprising there too, that there's, um, that our liberalism in the U.S. is actually right to the right of most of the rest of the world. That totally. like most, you know, like most sort of like loyal Democrat types don't seem to understand that that we're our our so called left leftism here is actually more right wing. And like you said, because the the McCarthy era and the Red Scare and the Cold War seems to have like not killed everything off, but it put. Um, it put everything into hibernation, it seems, for a few it decades. Did it for about fifty years? Because yeah. what happened was, it was the socialist parties, the communist party, and the labor movement. That those three that caused FDR to do what he did, because otherwise he could tell the industrialists who were the power and the money, look, they'll take it all unless you make these concessions, and. In Europe, although we had the Marshall Plan and they didn't get any money unless they were anti-communist, so they kicked them, the communists out of the government, but then they all went into the labor movement and they kicked them out of the universities and they poured into the labor movement, which is why the German metal workers just won a 20-hour work week this year for wow. the same money so they could have work-life balance, something Americans wouldn't dream about. But, you know, so they have a very militant left labor movement. And the the labor leaders are not fat cats who, who seem to get elected through life. Mm-hmm. And they get the same salary as the highest paid worker in their union. Mm-hmm. They don't get big corporate salaries. And so that there is a militancy mm-hmm. that we have missed. And yet, when Occupy started about 11 years ago, 
it immediately caught on because people remembered class. Oh, yeah, the 1% and the 99%. Mm-hmm. That has to be reintroduced. Mm-hmm. And I think the United States did what Europe couldn't because we were the kings of the world after World War II. We were the only developed economy that wasn't decimated. And so people did feel it if they were white and had a male in the family that was a wage earner, they would do better in every generation because in that brief period of time, post-war to about the 70s, that was possible. And even right. before then, in the, between 1820 and 1970, as a developing nation, we had that possibility. Mm-hmm. We don't anymore. And people are only now beginning to see through the anti-communist crusade that destroyed the movement that created the New Deal and say, we need a New Deal. We need Medicare for all. We need a Green New Deal. Now. Maybe at some point, not for this episode, but um, for those who, I'm only realizing this now because I kind of got caught up with like the the internet socialism hype over the last year or so in in myself no longer being afraid of terms like socialism or even communism. I know the, communism still has a very scary, scar- yeah. scary connotation to a lot of people. I think it would actually be worth our time and, you know, any listeners who want to give us feedback on this, but to actually like dig into what that means. Cause I think even like Kristen Godsey did a good job of pointing out how even throughout the Soviet bloc region, there were actually a lot of different experiments. And, and this, it is, is that, it's actually an unfortunate kind of stereotype when we think of, say, um, you know, one-party state, authoritarianism, et cetera, et cetera, as that being, um, or I know what you, I've heard you and what Rick often, you know, state, uh, state capitalism, or there's all these different kind of ways to describe it, but that's just one, to my understanding, historically, that's not really... Um, there's not there's not one way to do this stuff or to conceptualize what a more fair economy is. I think communism was supposed to be well. Initially, it was just sort of this theoretical, you know, stateless, classless, moneyless society that's like way off into the future, like in a thousand years or something. And that, like Marx was saying, well, socialism would be the transition kind of thing. Yeah. But I think it, it'd be worth at some point to actually dig into um, and to even respond to sort of good faith critiques because for those that are still even though there is a there's a this this um, intense hunger, I'm under I'm hearing from especially educators in universities right now. There's this like hunger, this desperate hunger for knowledge about all that was sort of hidden from us for like 50 years. I'm like, well, what is socialism? What is this? What is that? What did Marx say? What did Lenin say? What did Fanon write? And all that. Um, but I think even for our listeners and maybe to even tie it back at some point of like, why, why would we as two therapists on a podcast be talking about why anarchist socialists and communist movements in the U S are good for mental health? Yeah. <laughs> like it almost probably sounds like crazy for some, if somebody were just popping in listening now maybe. and they were like a fan of like, I don't know, psychology and mental health. So like, what the hell are you talking about? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and yet people are very excited about what we're talking about and what Kristen Godsey's book, yeah. Why yeah. Sex is Better Under Socialism, is very successful because she points out that you don't totally whitewash it or erase it, that there were very great things that happened 
First of all, with the Russian Revolution, women couldn't be killed, and they weren't the property of their husbands, so if they were beaten to death, who cared? And children weren't property either, and illegitimate children, children born outside of a marriage, were accepted with full rights, and they had great daycare and after-school care and a lot of, and canteens where people could bring home dinners for their family. They had a lot of strengths as well as authoritarian weaknesses of a ruling bureaucracy. And we have to learn from the strengths as well as the weaknesses. And our system has some benefits and also some great liabilities, which we are seeing in NEON during this pandemic. And these are psychological benefits. What makes people Mm -hmm. happier? The UN Happiness Index, which came out in 2021, every few years they do it again. It's all countries with a strong socialist presence, and none of them are spending anywhere near a trillion dollars on a military going around the world and failing at every war while spending trillions. And I say failing because we failed the war in Afghanistan, which has been sapping our treasury for 20 years, and which, by the way, the Afghanistani war wrecked the Russian empire and the British empire before, but whatever, there we are. And we also failed in Iraq. And so those are these trillion-dollar projects. What are we doing when we need so much help here? And the happier countries, psychologically, the mentally healthy countries, have nothing like that. The United States spends more on military than the next seven most militaristic nations combined. Where is our money going? And so that we need to reclaim our country and have an umbrella organization, whether it's DSA or another force or whatever, that captures all these things from climate to labor and to exports of our jobs and supports for our children. And so that we can unite together and get the mental health benefits because part of our privatized psychological establishment, which is shadowed and often controlled by the great, powerful, wealthy psychopharmaceuticals, doesn't talk about how every single thing that you do has a psychobiological, biochemical component. So, of course, you have chemical imbalance, and you don't necessarily need a pill. You need a balanced life. You need a life. You need connection. A pill may help you short term, fine, but that's just to buy. This is there's an interlocking corporate repression of our possibilities here. And I think it's a very healing, very healing set of realizations to realize no, you're not a failure personally. There's something, there's a hand crushing you down. Have some help pry that hand off your back, Mm -hmm. and people will be there to help you. Very important. So that may be a good time to end unless you want to add something else at the last. Uh, I mean, that that sounds about right to me. Um, I I would love, and if if anybody's gone this far in listening, um, I think, again, just going back to like that, that, 
I guess, okay, one last thing is when you mention organization, I think that um, there was something sort of marketed, I think, to the American individualist psyche that says, like, um, you're too cool to regularly attend meetings and, like, and, like, keep meeting minutes and then be involved in organizations unless the organization is, like, you're sort of attending to the organization of the media company that you're constantly addicted to, or like the organization of like your job that you have to go to or like, so, cause I've been thinking about this a lot too, in terms of, and this is no offense to any like anarchist listening. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like anti-anarchist, but I think sometimes there's a sort of, um, I don't know if it was Lenin or Mao, but some, one of these guys wrote a critique of sort of this adventurist yeah. lifestyleist anarchism. That's just like, well, if I just sort of like, if I dye my hair blue and if I wear black, <laughs> all black, and if I have like sort of circle A patches on my backpack or whatever as I'm walking to high school from, as like mom drops me off at the bus stop or whatever, like that, 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 that you're an anarchist, right? That you're sort of just, you're signaling cool. this, um, you're against authority, man. You know, like I smoke weed on my lunch break between classes, man. I'm a, you know, and that, so that's a stereotype because there's like very, I think like politically mature anarchists with like very, I mean, the, the co-op movement is arguably... <laughs> a very heavily like anarchism influenced movement on some level. But I think there is a sort of, um, there's a yuckiness to like, we need stable, uh, um, central, like centralization within organization. I think there's a lot of fear still on certain parts of the left. Yeah. They're like, Oh, well that's too, that's like authoritarian or something. And that, like, I just want to live my life as being opposed to the bad stuff. And um, and the anarchism can be really attractive for some people in that way. That, like, I'm against all hierarchy. And then, therefore, somehow throwing out organization altogether. That's because really need, important. If you need leadership in organization, then then it's, is that hierarchical? Right. So like, I I think, I think there's a lot of like in the American psyche, whether it's anarchism or libertarianism, or I don't trust government and therefore I don't, I don't, I don't trust leaders. Yeah. Organization. Then, well, like how the hell would anyone with that state of mind ever expect for there to be any force within the U S to ever overpower the forces that support capital, like to keep draining the life out of us. Like I, I personally can't see any possible way. Like maybe right. you can have some sort of decentralized federation of smaller yes. organization, but you still need organization, I guess. And that's something and, that, you know, the, I, yeah, I really want, we need to talk about it more. I think. Right. Yeah. The co-op movement <laughs> is a very good example of a non-hierarchical mm-hmm. organization and whatever organizations people have, they have to be accountable. There have to be checks and balances. There have to be rotating leaderships. However, people are more often more afraid of organization than they are of the algorithms that are controlling their minds or the bosses that are dominating them. And so we do need to stop fearing organizations and know that they are actually composed of us Mm -hmm. and we have the power. You know, when... Women's liberation was starting. That was the women's movement in the 19 late 60s. Um, we had one rule, which I was very pleased to initiate, which was everyone is welcome here unless they know exactly what we have to do, then they can't even talk. Not allowed. Because you don't want someone to claim they know everything. You have to do it together. 
but you still do need to take leadership and be accountable. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a very important point, Max. It's really important to end with that. Really important. Yeah. And maybe another time again, because this is, we kind of went all over the place, but something to, to dig into more. Because I think, um, and maybe even, a, I don't know if it'd be a critique, a broader critique of anarchism or of just sort of anti organizationalism or some, whatever you want to call it, or, or lumping organization into hierarchy somehow and yes. then sort of shoot, shooting yourself in the foot. But I, I do think that there are certain parts of the sort of revived or awakened left that I, I would like to start thinking more critically about, like, you know, do we have a strategy or not? You know, right. being against being against organization doesn't seem like it's a strategy to me. And it um, seems self-defeating because what we have is the ability to unify because we are so many. And if there's no organization, there's no unity either. Right, right. You need well, so anyway, we could accountable yeah, we could keep, leadership. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, um, if anybody wants to um, yell at us and send us hate mail or love mail or um, yeah, you offer could suggestions us too. or ideas, questions, reactions, we need your feedback. Yeah, anything. And we, we get a fair amount of it. We try to respond as quickly as we can. Totally. Um, so just email us at. Um, it's not just at your head. <laughs> it's not just in your head at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, um, we've been getting a lot more support lately. It's actually pretty it's great. wild. Thank you guys so much. Um, Patreon.com slash it's not just in your head. Um, shout out to revolution less or rev left radio. Like they just became a patron of ours. Like actually like a relatively like a mid mid to big size um, left podcast, so like wonderful. It's our first like podcast patron <laughs> support. Yeah, um, but I think like they told somebody and then other people. I don't know. So we've been getting like a lot of smaller chunks of support, but the, but the more the better. Also, it helps um, pay Liam for his editing work, which is I think it's one of the hardest valuable amounts of work in the podcast. So yeah, um, and we split it three ways. We try to make it equal. So. Okay, everybody. Thank you. Thank you and so much. And give us your reactions. And even though you don't give us money, we love you just as much, but we love to get patrons. We love you either way, especially if you are a cat or a dog. Um, that's like <laughs> the weirdest thing I could have said. But if somehow you are like a, non, a non-human animal, I personally like you extra much. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I'll stick that's with you. Whatever. Okay. The words came out of my mouth. I don't know. It's too late. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye-bye, everyone. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20% of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future 
become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head, and capitalism hits home are definitely complementary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com. 